Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, join me, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to finish this chapter today. It is a bit of a unique passage, and as I said earlier, perhaps even now, uh, some parent is uh, finding something to uh, keep some younger kids busy, maybe just for a little bit, and then hopefully you can come right back. That, that we definitely wouldn't want that to be lost, um, and then hopefully you can do that. Join me in Matthew chapter number 8. Uh, I, I really I thought earlier in the week that I was going to read Matthew 8, verses 28 to 34, those seven verses. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go over to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, because he, his account, same event, uh, gives several details that Matthew does not. Um, but again, as I said on the video that I sent out, knowing me, that would cost us quite a few minutes Uh, If I were to do that, because I would be commenting along the way. So what I want to do is as I'll read, I might just supplement a little here and there where some things that Mark had put in uh, to his version or Luke as well. And so if you would, look with me. Let's read the text starting in verse number 28. uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. Here was the scene where we last left off is that Jesus and some of his disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. They had been on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and they were making their way to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in that nighttime voyage, a storm arose, and Jesus had to calm a storm. And so last week, I left you thinking that, man, these disciples are asking, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the idea is that like the next morning, apparently, they make their way to land over on the eastern side. And one of the other gospels alludes that if you had the Sea of Galilee over on this again, on one side would be the the, the region of Galilee, and then on the other is more of a Gentile region, and you'll see that kind of brought out. So they're no longer in a Jewish area, they're more in a Gentile area, and yet Jesus, again, a mixed area, and Jesus has made his way over there for ministry, and he just gets off the boat, verse number 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. So he gets off the boat. Again, I won't take the time, but there's two guys that are running down the hill, apparently, headed toward the docks, and they meet Christ. If you read those other two Gospels, you already know, you've seen the difference. Mark and Luke only point out one demoniac, all right? So I'm going to use that phrase, maybe demoniac, as a person that is possessed of an evil spirit. And those other Gospels only focus on one, the predominant one, the one that actually has more demons apparently in him than the second one. And so that's not a contradiction. Matthew's just letting us know there were actually two. Mark and Luke focus on the one. Back to verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So they're coming out of the tombs. And again, the other Gospels tell us that they live among the tombs. This is their home. Whether they're actually in tombs and moving boulders and rocks to try to take shelter among dead bodies, or if there are empty tombs that have just been carved out into the hillside awaiting for a dead body, and they're using those. The bottom line, this is where they live away from the city. 
Two demon-possessed men met them coming out of the tombs. And then verse 28 continues. A lot of information, verse 28. So fierce that no one could pass that way. So the, apparently there's a lot of aggression. And, and these guys are so fierce and they're attacking people physically that no one comes near where they're at. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out. The idea is loudly cry out. In fact, the predominant one we know from the other Gospels comes and puts himself at the feet of Jesus. Little piece of information. Luke adds that the predominant one, the one that Mark and Luke focus on, he has been wearing no clothes. He's not worn clothes for a long time. These demons are so in control of him. He's not even wearing clothes. The man comes down, meets Christ at the docks. His disciples are around him. They look at this encounter. They're getting ready to hear something that probably sounds a little strange, but it's going to start the wheels turning in their mind based off of what they have seen in the middle of the night and what they've seen Christ in other miracles. So here comes this man at the feet of Jesus. He's wearing no clothes he's he it's not even him that is talking he has been so suppressed this man and these men that the demonic forces are actually the ones that are talking and there's what they say to Christ verse 29 question what have you to do with us very clearly asking what are you doing here it's not that these men have known Christ. It's not that these demons necessarily have known Christ, but perhaps some other demons have relayed to the demons in these two men as Christ is on his way and they make their way down. And again, verse number 29 in the middle, they ask, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? And the, I'm picturing the disciples listening to this exchange. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? There's their question. What are you doing here? Have you come here to torment us? And notice the second part of the question. Before the time. It's kind of a two-part. Have you come to torment us? Have you come to torment us before the time? And now a strange section. I don't know fully what to make of it. Verse 30. Let's read it quickly. All three gospel commentaries write the same thing. Now a herd of many pigs, well, that lets us know that we're in a Gentile region. A herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons, in this exchange with Christ, begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. They're making a request. We know that you're getting ready to cast us out. We're going to have to leave our host. Would you at least let us go into this herd of pigs? And he said to them, one word, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, strange phenomenon. So they go into the pigs that are at a distance away. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. I know that Mark did. I can't remember if Luke did this or not, but we're told that an estimated number of pigs there is around 2,000 pigs. They go rushing down, so the demons lead these men, enter into these pigs. These pigs are driven mad. They run down into the steep uh, cliff and off that cliff into the waters, and there they drown. And there's some people watching all of this exchange besides the disciples. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled. So the men who were in charge of watching these pigs, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, we could say one of the cities of Decapolis, 
Decapolis is a region having 10 different parts of its cities. And they go into one of those, verse 38. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So they tell about the pigs. They tell about those two guys that we always avoid. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him. Watch. All the city came out to meet Jesus when they, the city, the people of the city, saw Jesus They begged him. So the demons begged him. And now the city begs him. But here's what they beg. To leave their region. Will you please leave our region? I want to notice three things this morning. If you would. Number one, if you're taking notes. And this will be the longest point of the three. Definitely. And we're going to go some different directions here. But I want to take an opportunity to try to hopefully make some things clear. Number one, Jesus' encounter with demons. And here we're going to focus on verse 28 and 29. Jesus' encounter with demons. So again, if I were to go and read Mark and read Luke, here's what we would have added. They focus on one demoniac. What we have not seen in Matthew's abbreviated version is that this one particular, maybe the second man, but at least the one that has, he's possessed of many devils, many demons, so much so that they go by the name of Legion. For we are many. That's not the name given to them by God, but that's the name they've named themselves. We are many. They've adopted a name from the Roman military. We are many, and we go by the name kind of, we're one voice here, though many demons in this one man, and they go by the name of Legion. This man had been previously bound many times, but he could never continuously be bound because the other passages, the other gospels use two words, chains and shackles, and how he continually breaks the chains and shackles. Also not in Matthew is how that these demons caused this man to cut himself, and no doubt the other as well. And they spend their time among the tombs, and they're away from the city. And you can hear them crying out in the nighttime and in the daytime, in the deserted places among the tombs, up on the mountains. They're just crying out because of the torment that they're under. And they cut themselves with stones. And then, of course, one thing that also is in the other two Gospels is that after the healing and and the deliverance that Christ provides for them, Those two Gospels go out of their way to say that the men, when the city comes, the men are seated at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in their right mind, as though they've been out of their right mind while possessed. So I want us to notice this morning several thoughts out of this idea of Jesus' encounter with demons. If you have your Bible open, that's always useful. That's the best way to, to follow our teaching and preaching. Go back, not on the screen, look back at verse 16. You go back there, you remember a few weeks ago we saw what Jesus did at Peter's house. He heals his mother-in-law. Look at verse 16. So this is back in Capernaum before they sailed over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 16, look at it, it's important. That evening they brought to him, catch it, many who were oppressed by demons. And we say, well, okay, oppressed by demons. But in this case, we know that oppression meant possession because verse 16 says, and he cast out the spirits. So I want you to focus on that just for a moment. Look at verse 16. Many, they brought to him many who were oppressed. So just as I did a few weeks ago when we preached on that, I want to begin here with a basic foundational statement. Demons, if you're taking notes, demons are very real, very, very real. And they're always trying to work. And I pray against them. 
And no doubt they are trying to work right now. And they may be having some success, and that's all under the, the, the sovereignty of God. And that's why we would want to pray against them. They're very real and then also very biblical. They literally are able, they can possess the body of unsaved people. They can't possess the body of a Christian. We know that because the Holy Spirit is in us. But they can possess the body of an unsaved person. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take a moment. You may be tempted, and I know there are some. Again, I I think I said this a few weeks ago. Bless his heart, my buddy. He's he's gone on to be with the Lord, and I think he is with the Lord. William Barclay, I quote him a lot. But when I read him on this this week, he, he, he was just so, his whole tone was basically a stance of sometimes people think they are possessed. And that's, that's all he did with the text, is just kind of dealing with people who think something. And it's really, they've, they've worked themselves up, and they just need to be convinced of some things like that. Guys, listen, these are real. What I don't want you is to, and I realize I'm talking to some folks right now, and this is what you're thinking. Jeff, I hear what the Bible says, but it doesn't match my reality. I, I can't think of one person. In my whole life, I can't think of one person that I think is, has been or is actually possessed of a demonic force. I, I just don't know. And so before you discount the Scripture or you say, well, I'm not discounting it. That was probably the way it was back then. Guys, don't do a then as opposed to now mentality. Don't do that. What I want us to understand is that we need to have a then and now. And it may not be always exactly then as now or now as then. But I want you to understand it is then and now mentality because there is a reality of demons that were in place at that time and that are very active on the earth even today. And so I thought about that. If someone is out there and you're saying, I I don't think I've ever... uh, I've been in a couple of situations. Uh, I, I used to do a service uh, I used to be in the service industry when I lived in Greenville years ago, and there was a particular stop on my route that I felt like, I just felt in my spirit like there was a demonic possession in that house, and there's probably been other situations that the Lord would prompt me, like maybe that's what's going on. You say, I've never had that. Hey, guys, listen, I'm just going to offer this. This is not guaranteed from Scripture. I'm just going to propose it to you. Can I give you four things to consider before you discount the reality of demons and that they can possess unsaved bodies. Number one, please understand some places can have greater concentration of demonic forces than others. And apparently Galilee, verse 16, was that. There was a greater concentration of demonic forces there. Hey, I'm going to throw a couple of places out. I've never been there in all my life, but things I've heard, India, Nepal, Certain cities in the United States, certain cities around the world, certain portions of cities around the world, probably larger cities and certain other places, they probably have a a greater concentration of demonic forces. And so you say, well, I've not experienced that. Well, praise the Lord. A second thought to consider would be this. The human population has grown and increased. Demonic forces, remember, they were angels. They created angels. One-third of the angels follow Lucifer. So there's two-thirds of the angels remained faithful to the Lord God. One-third followed Lucifer. They are now these evil spirits, demonic forces. So they're outnumbered two to one. But they have a finite, fixed number of them. But if the population of mankind, the human population, has grown... Well, then maybe one thing to consider is that the ratio of demonic forces to human population 
has dispersed and has lessened that ratio to some degree. A third thing that I really want you to consider is that possession, demonic possession, may not always look the same. It may not always look like verse 16. It might not always look like verse number 28. Right? So we, we may get this idea of a wild-eyed, foaming-at-the-mouth, possessed person. It may not always look like that. And then I'm going to offer one more. I almost threw this out, and then it kind of occurred to me in a more specific way. This ties back to the greater population, but a different way of thinking about it. Can I propose to you that Satan perhaps has had to change his strategy from that time? I still believe that he no doubt uses demons to possess people, but something that he has to deal with now that he wouldn't have had to deal with then is, get it, the hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of Christians that are now all around the world that were not in place at that time. At that time, you would have had like one little nation, and it's maybe a few million people, and in their little synagogues that are scattered around parts of Europe and the Near East and parts of Africa, but nothing like what Satan has to deal with now. And so he cannot possess a Christian, but he sure wants to oppress them, us, all around the world. And so maybe he's had to lessen his numbers that he can actually have possessing unsafe people. Just throwing that out so you don't discount the scripture. So here, here's the thing. What have we talked about so far? The reality of demonic forces. Secondly, again, not on your handout, just in my mind, I want you to understand how they're described. Without rereading the text, did you notice three things? Write them down. Three things that the Bible is very clear about demonic forces. Number one, I said this a few weeks ago, they are far stronger than human beings. Demon of themselves, they're stronger than us. When they come into a person and possess a human being's body, that person, it isn't about size, it's not about muscle, it's about this unseen force behind them is allowing them to have even physical strength that is far greater than what you would see with, your, with, the, with the eye. And so they have greater strength than us. I won't turn there. Acts chapter 19, go look it out. You'll, here's what you'll find. There were seven brothers, seven sons of a man named Siva, or Sceva, S-C-E-V-A. And they're Jewish, and they're putting themselves off as though they're exorcists, right? And so there's this man who is possessed of a devil, and they're trying to exorcise this demon out of him. And so as they're talking to this man, here's what they do. They use the name of Jesus. And not, again, not for word for word, but they say, in the name of Jesus... Who Paul preaches, they command this demonic force to come out. Now, here's the problem. Read the text. I'm going to paraphrase. The demonic force in the man answers back to these seven brothers and says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of, but I don't know you. And they, that, that, that demonic force empowers that man to literally overcome, physically overpower seven. The odds are seven to one. He easily overpowers them. They go running out of the house and remember this. He strips their clothes off. That seems to be a little bit of a recurring thing. You see it in Matthew 8. You see it in Acts chapter 9. Rips their clothes off as they're running. They're just physically stronger. Luke or Mark tells us that this demoniac, the, the predominant one, no one is able, no one can subdue him. And where once they had bound him with chains and shackles, they can't do it anymore. He's just so strong, he literally is just tearing it apart. Second thing we notice from our text. Not only are they stronger than humans, but demonic forces harm their host. They damage the physical bodies of their host. And that seems to be a theme that runs throughout Scripture. 
Sometimes you'll see them having causing seizures to a person. Demon-possessed person may have seizures. I'm not saying every person that has seizures is demon-possessed. Please don't mistake that. Often a devil-possessed person will have seizures. We know that they cut themselves. Let that sink in. We know that some people are prompted to cut themselves with razor blades. In their case, they, they use stones, sharp stones. That is not God prompting you, and that may not even be you prompting that, but a person, I'm not even saying that a person is possessed, but these things are projecting the thought, this idea, do harm, cut yourself. They would burn themselves in the scripture. I didn't look it up, but I think, if I'm not correctly, they have actually, demon possessed people in the scripture have been trying to throw them into the water to drown them, literally just to harm the host. And as we've alluded to a while ago, to take their clothes off. I don't understand that. But it kind of tells me, wait a minute, if you're constantly being prompted, wear less clothes than would, would be normal. Take your clothes off in a situation where you shouldn't. That is probably a demonic force. It seems to be one of their patterns. They're telling you to do this. Don't follow their prompting. Third thing that we notice from the text describing their activity is that they often use their host to attack other people. They use their host. Again, this is a human body. And there's a human being, a personality, a soul and spirit in that body, the real person. But they can suppress them so much so that they now take over the use of that body and, again, attack. They may attack verbally and they can attack physically. And that's what we saw in verses 28 and 29. Hey, guys, listen. Let's just be practical. Just as sure as there are streets in the United States that are not safe for the average person to walk down because they may get physically attacked, in this passage today... There is a section just outside of town where the local people learned if you don't want to get hurt, then you go stay away from that area and you stay away from those two men because they will attack you. And that is the scene that Jesus comes off a boat and he encounters this. But if you noticed as well as I did, Jesus is not concerned. Jesus is not afraid. Jesus welcomes this encounter. It is not said, but please understand, there is, there is an unseen conversation that is taking place, not between the body of Jesus and this man, but between the Spirit of Christ and these evil spirits. They know He knows you do not mess with me. I made you, and they know, yes, you did. And so Jesus welcomes this encounter. He's not afraid. He's doing what hardly anybody else in the area will do. He's confronting and being confronted by these two men. Look with me at verse 29. And behold, they, this is not the men, this is not the two men. These are the devils within them. They cried out. Now watch. Here's what I want to start transition for a moment. What's their theology? What do they know? Well, they know quite a bit. In verse 29, behold, they, these devils, cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment? Hold your spot. Would you go with me? And you're going to want to go there. James chapter 2. Would you flip over? James chapter 2. Would you look at that for a moment? James chapter 2. I'm going to look at one verse. I found this, I think it was Tuesday in my devotions. Those of us, several of us, are reading through the New Testament this year. We just finished James. I think so we're actually getting ready tomorrow morning uh, to start the book of Matthew, I think, is, is the plan. We finished chapter 5 on Friday. 
James chapter 2. Now, before I give it to you, here's, here's James, the point James is making. So let's get this in our mind. Watch. Good theology, even accurate theology, by itself is not sufficient. Good, accurate theology by itself is not enough. Verse number 19, James 2. James tells his audience, you believe that God is one? So what he was trying to say, hey, there are people who say they're born again. They say they have faith, but their life hasn't changed. James says, I'm not buying it. I need to see some work, some changed life along with your profession. Some people were very content. Yes, I prayed a prayer one time. I said, Jesus is Lord. Yes, I'm a Christian. And James says, no, your life should match it. Just having good theology and accurate theology is not enough. You should have a changed life. Verse 19, you believe that God is one? Oh, yeah, I believe there's only one God. Great. And that would have been very unusual back then. Most of the world at that time was polytheistic. Probably about half of the world today is either atheistic or polytheistic. And probably about half is monotheistic. We fall in that latter category of the monotheistic. Look at verse 19 again. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. But it's as though he has the word but. Again, even the demons believe. He's saying even the demons believe that. And shudder. Notice, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Literally, their theology affected them so much, it moves them emotionally what they know. They're moved emotionally by what they know. So what's this tell us? James 2.19, coupled back with Matthew 8, verse 29, shows us several things that demons know. Write them down. Number one. They, and I've worded this strangely, I understand. They know that God is. They know that God is. There is a God. Some people don't believe there's a God. The devils know there's a God. And they know that God is one. He's not many. He's not multiple. Even the one true God, though Father, Son, and Spirit, is still one God. There's not three gods. There is one God. They know that God is one. Devils know there aren't many gods. The devils know that Lucifer is not a god like God is God. It's not even close, though they choose to follow him. They know that God is. They know that God is one. And they know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. They know this theology. If you've written that already in a moment, I'm going to give you another thing that they realize. Would you say, hold on. How would these two men that are possessed of devils know that Jesus, hey guys, it's not that this man or these two men had encountered the man Jesus, but these spirits, these created spirits, recognize the Christ spirit that is in the body of Jesus. Why? Because they had actually worshipped him in heaven before this. So they know, they quickly recognize. That's why they come down. I believe that some demonic forces cross the water before Jesus even got there on the boat. Let's them know that's why they come running down. Either that or they intimidate everybody who comes to the docks. But they come running down and they bow down and they start this immediate conversation with him, not even acknowledging the disciples. The disciples are just watching all of this exchange. James chapter 2 tells us that when they think of God, they shudder. Why? I want to give you three reasons, and the third reason is also a fourth thing that we know from our text that demonic forces know. Here's why they shudder. Get it. They've seen God. Why do they shudder at the thought of God? They have seen God. They've been in heaven. They worshiped Him. Guys, if we ever see God, then we would have a whole brand new healthy fear of God. 
We would love him more. We would rest in him more. We would worry far less. But we would have a reverential awe and fear of God. They have seen him. Number two, they have experienced a measure of his wrath. He has expelled them from heaven because of their rebellion. So they've already experienced some of the wrath. But here's the fourth thing on your, on your handout that they know. They not only know that God is and that he is one and that Jesus is the son of God. They know that they have a coming day of judgment and it will result in their eternal torment. They know this. Don't turn back there, but in verse number 29 of Matthew 8, they're asking, have you come here to torment us? Are you going to throw us in the abyss before it's time? And notice, we know that we're going to be judged, but did you notice two things? Hold your spot in James, because we're going to look at another passage in James just in a moment. I want you to listen, though, again, what they say in Matthew 8, 29. Catch it. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This seems early. This seems like it's not the time. We don't notice. They don't know that they know judgment's coming. They don't know when judgment's coming. But here's what really struck me this week. They don't know why Christ is they don't know why Jesus the Christ who is the son of God. Why are you here? That's the question. If I hope I'm not harming the text. It's as though they're asking why are you, why are you here? It's not time for the torment yet. We think some other things have to happen. Why are you here? Guys, this week we celebrate on Friday, Good Friday. We celebrate the death of Jesus Christ on a cross and then a resurrection. Guys, you know as well as I do, that happened on a practical level because the Jews totally missed the Old Testament prophecies. But this tells me, this text tells me, even the devils, things we look back now and we see clearly how what God was going to do, how his son had to actually come to earth in two parts. The first time was to pay for sin. Here, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, encounters these devils. They have no clue why he's here. They don't know. If they knew, guys, they would have never let the cross happen. They never would have prompted the Jews to be in cahoots with the Romans and actually crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan would have stopped that if he knew all the wonderful great things that God would bring out of the death and resurrection of Christ. But they don't know this. Again, holding your spot in James. We'll be back. We're going to look at chapter 4 in a moment. But I want to take a moment. And I, again, I am now stepping. I'm, I'm confessing here. I'm stepping away from the safe grounds of Scripture and I want to take a moment to offer you what I think are, is my opinion. I, I think I'm right on these things. I'm going to offer to you that perhaps devils, demonic forces, focus their activity and their efforts on specific groups of people more than others. Please understand, I'm not saying these are the only groups that receive an attack from demonic forces, but I believe they focus their attention on two or three particular groups. You understand? Somebody else may say, I have a loved one and I know that they're being attacked and they don't necessarily fall in those two. I get that, but I'm going to offer to you two particular groups. Number one, it won't be in your handout. I believe that demonic forces focus some of their attention and their targeting on unsaved people who invite them. You understand what I'm saying? Unsaved persons may naively or intentionally yes I want to experience that I want to see what that's like. some totally naively 
Hey, guys, here's what we don't know. We don't know how a human being, their body, and here's a demonic force. What happens at the moment that this comes and lives and now there's two people living in here? What happens? We don't know what happens, but I'm going to propose to you that that possession probably takes place at a higher percentage when human beings, unsaved human beings, again, naively or consciously, open themselves to be possessed. By doing what? By involving themselves in certain activity. Occultic activity. We can laugh and we can think it's fictional. Guys, it's not. There is satanic worship that takes place. There are ceremonies of worshiping Satan and dabbling in the things of Satan. There is black magic and there is sorcery. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dabbling and flirting with or getting heavily involved with fortune telling games, again, seemingly innocent little games, Ouija boards, and inviting the spirits to reveal themselves and show themselves, or role-playing games where you get involved in these demons. I, I believe these people are literally opening themselves, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to be possessed by these beings, more so than the average person. I'm going to offer that if you were to add alcohol or drugs and even some certain music to such occasions, they are really inviting. You say, Jeff, what would be the result of that? Again, it's my opinion. I'm going to offer you that an unsafe person possessed by a devil is going to have abilities that they, that human being, did not have before. You say, like what? They'll know things. They'll be fed, literally fed within. They're fed information on an as-needed basis that they would not know of themselves. So, Jeff, where do you get that from? Uh, well, right here is these, this man who knows, apparently, through him, these demons know who Jesus is. Jesus looks like a normal Jew to everybody else. They recognize. Guys, here's the way I would put it. A spirit-filled Christian. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. But a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they know things that they could not have known. They perceive things that they, by themselves, could not have known. They're able to speak and to act and to be used in ways that they do not have that ability. I want to propose to you that an unsaved person possessed by demonic forces will know things and learn things and be fed information. You say, Jeff, what do you, what do you think about these fortune tellers? Do you think anything's to it? Hey, guys, my opinion, I believe a lot of hucksters are out there. There's a lot of people in it just scamming people, and a lot of it's fake. But I also believe a lot of it's real. Jeff, you, you actually think? I believe a lot of it is real. I have no doubt that whether someone's sitting across from a desk or on a phone, a demonic force within that person can tell them and prompt them. Again, take the phone scenario. You dial some 1-900 number. They used to have those on TV. And you're spending your dollars and they're making money. And some being inside this person, this human being, they can prompt and say, and hey, man, they start describing the color of shirt that you're wearing, what somebody's doing in the other room, what happened in your family a week ago. Yes, they know information. Of course, that's not a hard thing. And they can maybe try to project and make prophecies and predictions, here's the thing, they will never be 100% accurate because now they have to make those things try to happen. The prophecies in Scripture are 100% accurate. I think that a devil-possessed person is going to possess an ability to beguile, charm, persuade, that they otherwise did not happen. I'll go further than that. I think 
not always, but I think some devil-possessed persons may have the ability to recognize other possessed people on both sides. I think that they could recognize some. You said, Jeff, where are you getting this information? I can't tell you, but I've heard a firsthand account of this a person that I highly respected and knew, and they said there were situations that they would be surrounded by and they could recognize each other and that they would know things. But I'll go further than that. I think there are times I'm sure the demonic forces in a person know when a person is a Christian because they recognize the Holy Spirit in that body. If they relay that to the human being, I don't know, but it may be just like tension, like, I don't know, why does that person seem to hate me so much? They may recognize the Holy Spirit of God in you. Second person that I think is often attacked by Satan and by his forces, catch what I'm saying, is a Christian who is allowing themselves to be greatly used by the Lord. And I want to qualify that. I am saying God is doing the work. God is doing the work through this human being. But I have no doubt demonic forces can recognize that's a surrendered person. That person is being used of God, and they're going to target that person and try to oppress, not possess, but to attack and oppress. I think on your handout I allowed, there would be many more, but notice three ways that I think they can attack. Number one is they can project, it seems they can project thoughts, not from the inside, but from the outside. Project sinful thoughts. Here's a person that's being used of the Lord, and out of nowhere, where did that, that thought, a dream what? Where did that dream come from? And they want to affect that person by some random thought. Can I get them to chase it? Can I get them to adjust their life off of some random godless dream that they put and projected into that Christian? You say, Jeff, I don't think that. Okay, that's fine. We can disagree on that. I think they're able to do that. Another one. I've seen this. They're actually able, again, as God allows. And that's in God. Why did, why did God allow Satan to... Afflict Job. Well, he had to get permission, but he did do it. And God used it. But I think there are times that even these demonic forces from the outside can cause extreme fatigue. And even some levels of sickness to try to come upon the useful Christian. You understand what I'm saying? Here's a person being used mightily by God, and they don't know why, but like the next day, it's just like, man, I'm just so tired. I'm just so fatigued, or I feel like... Almost like I'm getting sick, and it could be their oppression against. Because what I have read about and heard, and I think even witnessed, is their greatest, one of their greatest things, their weapons, is they attempt to cause seasons of darkness. Like seasons of mental darkness to just hover around the useful Christian. This Christian allows themselves to be used by God, and yet these demonic forces just like want to put them in a dark, dark place. I literally think that happens. What's their goal? They want this Elijah. They want this person to feel downcast. They want this person to feel like they're all alone. They, if they can, if possible, can we get this person to feel depressed? Can we cut them off, make them feel isolated? So guys, can I just say this? Most of us have seen the people who have been greatly used by the Lord and we're very thankful for them. They've been used in mighty ways. What we may not realize is that they are going through things. They are fighting battles we don't even know and maybe they don't even know the battles that they're fighting. Please guard against this. It is so easy when we see that person used by God 
to appreciate, to receive, to admire. Those are fine. That's fine. That's natural. It's normal to receive. You know what they need? What they need is our support, our encouragement. The greatest thing they literally need is they need our prayers. God, they're being used to affect that people. God, they're being used in my life. Would you please put a protection around that person? That's what they need. Let me tell you what they don't need. They don't need adoration. There's a lot of celebrity Christians that are going around the world. And people receive from them and they're being used by God. And all of a sudden people just start adoring and worshiping. And it's like, stop doing that. You're only going to feed another problem. Encourage. Edify. Support. Maybe you're able to help them in some way. More than anything, pray for them. I will not develop the third group, but I think the third group that they target themselves against are those who have great influence over large numbers of people. And, of course, there we're talking about spiritual leaders over large groups of people. I won't even say. I think I've seen uh, people that do ministry different than I do. But God's used them. And they were attacked, and they fell into sin, and we didn't know what they were going through. We've seen that over and over. They need our prayer. Uh, Leaders, political leaders, who their decisions have great influence, you have to know they are a target of the enemy. You're in James 2. Would you flip over to one page over, James chapter 4? You still have your Bible open, I hope. I want you to understand that Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34 are not in the Bible to scare us, and they're not in the Bible, you know, to make us afraid and to cause us to retreat. Please, they're in the Bible to inform us and to let us know we need to prepare for their activity. Look at James chapter 4, look at verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. So there's this opposition that is going to come, and you'll see it referred to in a moment. But he... This is important. You want to remember, remember this. You say, I've been feeling oppressed. I'm a Christian. I've been feeling some of this oppression you described a while ago. Well, remember this, verse 6. But he, God, gives more grace. Grace can be an ability. Grace is a gift. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, the Bible says, watch this. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, because God opposes the proud, God gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Watch what the middle of verse 7 says. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You resist. You say, what if I feel like something you described a while ago has actually been happening against me? Resist the devil, and he will flee. Do not run from the devil. Verse 8 makes it even more clear. Draw near to God. So you're submitting yourselves to God. You're resisting the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands means our life. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he goes on and and speaks more in this text. Did you notice? Guys, this text, and again, on your own time, go back and start at verse 1. I don't have time to do that. Verse 1, down through what we read, and even a little bit further, gives three forces that oppose all Christians. Three forces oppose all Christians. Again, you'd need to look at it. Number one, 
our own fleshly desires. If you're a Christian, you are opposed by your own fleshly desires. Your desire. I mean, me. Minding your own business. And all of a sudden, your desire goes towards something and you start pursuing that and you start feeding that and we find conflict comes out of that because I want my way and I want this and all of a sudden we're fighting and we're we're praying these prayers, God, give me this because I want my desires, but we're not getting that prayer answered. So we're murdering and fighting and conflicting, quarreling. Why? Because of our desires are against us. The second thing that you'll see in the text is the world system. Literally, sometimes we're minding our own mental business and out of the blue, we're being marketed to by the world system, trying to get us to pursue. It's trying to stir up our desires. And then as we read in verse 7, devils. Did you catch it? Three forces always are trying to oppose Christians. Our own desires, the worldly system that opposes God. God says, don't commit adultery against me. I'm jealous for your spirit. I want your faithfulness. And when you pursue the things of the world, you're committing adultery against God. And then the devil. Hey, guys, did you notice what I did? There's one person. I just gave you three forces that oppose us as Christians. Can I tell you who you do not want against you? God opposes the proud. That's what we don't want. How can we not make that happen? Whether it be my own desires or the world attacking against me or demonic forces coming against me, resist them. How? By submitting to God, drawing close to God. Can I say it this way? Demonic forces, guys, they want to push over. That's what they want. They're going to attack you. They want to push over. They don't want a God encounter. If you see yourself getting attacked by demonic force, you're just kind of sensing it. Like, man, this kind of makes sense. I think that's what's been happening. And it's going to happen in the future. It's going to happen before tomorrow is over. Once you sense that, if you will let it make you submit even more to God and draw closer to God, they're not going to come after you if you're getting closer to the Lord. They don't want a God encounter. They want a weakling. They want someone that doesn't know what the Bible says that just gives in and collapses You also have another text. I'm not going to turn there because I would really get bogged down, and that's Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. Listen, just listen. Paul tells the Ephesian church, hey, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not yourself. You're not working up your strength. And then he says, hey, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Your real enemy is not that person that you think of as your enemy. It's not that politician. It's not that neighbor. It's not the boss. It's not that coworker. It's not that family member. Your real enemy is not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of the air and spiritual darkness and wickedness and high places, all of these demonic forces. That's the enemy. Watchman Nee, little bitty book called Sit, Walk, Stand. Watchman Nee, and I don't have time to develop this, but he tells us that what's going on in Ephesians chapter 6 is that, catch it, Christ has won ground for us. He's already won certain ground. It is our rightful place. The enemy wants us to come and to cower down in that place or to give up the ground. Hey, guys, Ephesians 6 is not about us going and conquering places that we don't deserve to be in. It's about what God has already done, what Christ has won at the cross, and we are to hold that ground. How? By being armed with Christ's armor. And again, I cannot preach Ephesians 6, but would you write these? There, man, it's truth, and there's righteousness, and there's the, the helmet of salvation, and, 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 and feet being sh- uh, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's all of these things. But Ephesians 6 gives us three special pieces of weaponry that in, in 
times we're attacked that we are to especially bring to the fray. And they're successful. If you want to write them down, number one, faith, our shield of faith, quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. All of his schemes are stopped by faith. And we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That doesn't, I've said before, that doesn't, that phrase, Word of God, doesn't mean just all the various parts of the Bible. It means very specific portions of the Scripture that apply to the attack that's coming against you. You say, what do you mean, like specific portions of Scripture? Listen carefully. Passages like James 4, 6 through 8. Passages like Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Arm yourselves. Passages like Philippians 4. If we can use the rhema, the specific portion of, of God's word, and then also prayer, we can combat. We will win. We will not get this is our rightful ground. We will win the battle against Satan in the armor of God, in his strength. Would you make your way back? Matthew chapter 8. Now, very quickly, we're going to hit the second, and this is the shortest of our three points. Number two. So we've seen this encounter by Christ. They're real. We have some descriptions. We see some of their theology, conjecture about some of their techniques and targets. We know that we are equipped to win. They, they do not want an encounter with God. Notice number two, back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus delivers by granting an unusual request. Jesus delivers. This, act, this point actually has a couple of parts to it. Focus on the second part first. Jesus grants an unusual request. He delivers by granting an unusual request. Look at verse 30 and 31. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out. The idea is since you're going to cast us out. If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Guys, I don't have a whole lot to say about that section because it's a little bit confusing to me. Here's what I know. This points to them being in a Gentile region. And this tells me that these demonic forces who call themselves legion because they are many... As they're talking to the Lord Jesus Christ, they know they're talking to their creator and that they can't do anything, especially have the requests granted that they want without his permission. They're asking for permission. I don't know why they want to go into these pigs. I don't understand. Maybe they're just unclean and pigs were seen as unclean and they want to have that. If we can't have this human host, at least let us go into there. I don't know the full reason. Can I offer you a few? Mark chapter 5 says their main goal is we want to stay in this region. Can we at least stay in this region? You're not going to make us go to the abyss, are you, and be tormented before the time. Can we go over there and at least we get to stay in this region? Another thing, in Matthew chapter 12, in four more chapters, Jesus is going to let us in on a little hint. For some reason, they desire a home, a host. And so they're willing to have, apparently, even if for a moment, pigs as a host. So they want a home. If we have to give this one up, can we at least go over there? And that's what, frankly, I'm just confess to you, I'm a little confused by that part. I don't know if they meant for these pigs to go mad and off the cliff and into the water and drown. Maybe it was accidental. Maybe the influx of them just made the pigs react that way. Or maybe they did it on purpose. If they did it on purpose, can I offer to you that it might be because they just hate God's creation? And it may be that they want to inflict damage on the local economy that is attached to things like these pigs and if they can inflict damage on the economy then maybe it will be a bad reflection on the Lord Jesus Christ and we can damage his ministry in this area whatever their reasoning was Christ grants their request unusual but he doesn't 
But notice the first part of the second point. You see that again? Jesus delivers by granting. So guys, up till now, I have focused largely on this exchange between these demons and Christ. But that's not the main point of the text. Those first two words of the second point are the main point of the text. Here's the thought. Write it down. Jesus delivered. The main thing in the text that we can't miss. He said, man, I've got some things to think about. Okay, that's great. The main point of the text is the following. Jesus delivers people from the grip of sin and from the grip of Satan. Jesus delivers I'm wondering, maybe that's the whole point of these three Gospels telling us about these pigs, so that we will have a visual representation that Jesus really did deliver these two men. Luke and Mark are going to say that they're going to be clothed and seated at the feet of Jesus. They're in their right mind. And if that's not enough of a change for you, did you see the 2,000 pigs run off the cliff and into the water and drown? Jesus really did deliver these people. Here's what we have. Before, words of Christ, after. We have before Christ shows up, this is what life is like. We have Christ saying some words or a word, and then we have what happens after. Jesus delivers. Think of the before. Can I remind you guys? Go with me just for a moment. These two men are afflicted. They are tormented. They are abused. I mean, these two men are literally being used and abused as pawns. Their bodies just at the disposal of these beings. Again, they are tormented. They're not in their right mind. Do you understand that? People no doubt hate these two guys. That's not them. It's not them. They're not dealing with them. Those people have been, these two men have been suppressed. They are so suppressed. What, they're, what people are dealing with are these demonic forces. People hate them. These men are forced to live their life. Is among, think of their life before Christ. They live among the tombs, among dead people. Either, again, sharing a tomb with a dead person's body or where a dead body is going to be placed. And they just, again, all in the desert places and among the mountains. And they're crying out and they're cutting themselves and they're burning themselves. They have a horrible life. Hey, I understand. They hurt people. They hurt people. They inflicted damage. But they're the ones that suffered the most. They have the worst of it all. I know sometimes, man, you may be, somebody out there is thinking, I think I know a person that is possessed because they attack. And it's just like, it's like, man, they're one time, they're this person. Another time, it's like they're that person. Because you understand, if if that is what's happening in this situation, it's not them. It's these other beings. This person's living in torment. And then Christ comes along. And with one word, Jesus says, Go. And immediately, these two men, in one word, are released by the demons, and they're given back their life, and they're given back their right mind. Somebody may be watching right now, and you may be thinking, Jeff, do you think a devil-possessed person can get saved? I say absolutely yes. If you're taking a note, just a few moments, I'm going to get about halfway through this note, And you're going to see it come up on the screen because it's a long note and you need to write it. But I want you to kind of digest it as we go. Jeff, can a possessed person get saved? I really do believe they can. But I will offer the following. The devils will surely fight to keep their property. The devils will surely fight to keep 
the possessed person in subjection. They are going to fight for everything they have. But here's what we learn from Scripture, and this is so important, guys. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You understand? Even a devil-possessed person, they have to hear the gospel. But if they can hear the gospel, that God loved them so much that in spite of their sin, in spite of their possession, if they can hear the truth that God sent his son into the world to die on a cross and it was enough to pay for all the sins they've ever committed, and if they'll put their faith and trust in him, then, yes, this is the power of God unto salvation. The Bible also tells us that the Holy Spirit's call is effective. It's effective. Satan can't stop the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And we also learn this. You say, but Jeff, they're devil-possessed. Hang on. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. He cleanses from all sin. Do you understand? If the person, if, if, like listening right now, if there's a person right now who's even under the influence of a demonic force, if you can fight through and push and focus and put them aside, and you, the real you inside, you were to hear the gospel. And if you were to put your faith and trust in the word of God, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to this one. The Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you can fight through, and if you can say, I know this they or it is not the Lord. Jesus, you are the... Can you confess that? Jesus, you are the Lord. Jesus, you have promised. God's word says that your blood is sufficient to wash me from all of my sin. If you will trust that, you will be saved. I'm going to tell you what will happen. In that moment that you trust, a new sheriff comes in town. I mean a big spirit, the Holy Spirit. They immediately have to leave because the Holy Spirit comes in. They're gone. There's no room for the Holy Spirit and a demonic spirit. Jeff, do you think you can get saved? Absolutely. My prayer is that someone would do that. Like literally just from your heart acknowledge, Jesus, you are the Lord. You're my Lord, and I trust the Word of God that your death on the cross is for me, and I Rest in it. I take it at this moment, and you will be delivered. Matthew chapter 8, third thought this morning, comes out of verse 33, 34, and that's a fateful choice for the status quo. It's a fateful choice for the status quo. Would you look at verse 33? So Christ delivers... They go into the pigs and drown them. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Hey, guys, I don't know about you, but it seems to me, after all that Jesus did, you think this city would come out and beg Jesus, would you please stay a little longer? We, you've done what we could never do. We've tried with chains and shackles, and with just one word, you did what we could Would you please? We know you're busy. We know you have to go. Would you just stay? That's not what happens. My mind already went there. I was trying to think, why did they do this? The text doesn't really say. I think R.T. France, may, he better expresses what I had in my mind as I was reading this. So I, I'm going to offer this to you. Again, the text doesn't say why they asked him to leave. We know that they were fearful. They were afraid, something about what Jesus did. 
France writes the following. He says, quote, whereas among the Jews, his, his miracle working power has attracted people to follow Jesus, here in the Decapolis, they want to get rid of him. For them, he's not a messianic figure. You understand? He's, they're not looking for a Messiah. So let me read that again. Whereas among the Jews, his miracle working power has attracted people to follow Jesus. Here in the Decapolis, they want to get rid of him. For them, he is not a messianic figure, but a wandering Jewish holy man. Quote, holy man whose activities have already caused a great deal of damage. Unquote. You've already caused enough trouble. Would you, would you just leave? And I'm thinking, I, I think he's on to something. And so rather than them asking Christ to stay and inviting more of Jesus... Guys, I want to propose to you that what is taking place is this. They care more about monetary loss than spiritual gain. They care more about monetary loss than spiritual They don't care about these two men. Hey, that's fine. But look what you did there. And if that's what you're going to do, we don't want that anywhere around here. The impression that we get, catch this, this is important. This is where we're going for the, for the remainder of the message. It seems like they just want to get back to life before Christ. We just want to get back to our normal life before you showed up. Before you came with your special revelations. Can we just, could you just leave? We just want to get back to things as the way they were. And there's the message. But as you see from your handout, I'm not quite done because I hope I'm not stretching this. Guys, something's actually been on my heart. I almost sent it out as a was a separate video the other day, but then I read this text, and I think this actually is where we're at as a country. If you're taking notes, write this down. It appears that God is dealing with our nation for several things, and this is a sample, sample list. This may be a stretch. I hope it's not. I'm going to offer to you that God may be dealing with our nation in a unique way, especially revealing himself. Hey, Anybody has to look and say, this is not just random things. God is allowing something. God is using something. Why? I'm going to propose one of the reasons is as I'm about to describe. Y'all remember how a few weeks ago? It seems like so long ago. You remember when we were hearing these two terms? Socialism. Capitalism. Uh, we had a presidential primary taking place and trying to decide who's going to be the nomination for the particular party and so here are these, it gotten, you know, they were 12 and then down to 8 and finally down to seemingly 2 or 3. And we're hearing about socialism and capitalism. Guys, I understand, literally as I say those words, many of you who know more than I do about these two words, these are very emotional terms. Uh, they've been emotional to me as well, right? Uh, some of you are like, those are black and white. That is so black and white. That's black and that's white, right? And you, that's the way you hear that. And maybe a generation's coming along, and it's not black and white to them. They're hearing this more as gray, and they have some different ideas. Because here's the problem. You say, yes, it's black and white. That's black. Okay. Can I propose to you that we need to be careful? Listen, I'm going somewhere with this. We need to realize that both of these economic systems, both of them have built-in flaws. Do we understand that? You say, well, America's a capitalist. I understand. You say, I could tell you the flaws about, I understand that. But each of them, you say, why? Because of the effects of sin on the human race, socialism, communism, capitalism, you name them all, each has built-in flaws. 
I know very little about economics, and I'm going to reveal that in my words. But if I could super overly simplify socialism and just let's just call it government provision, right? The government provides. They provide a military, and they provide police, and they provide roads and rules for the roads, and they educate first through 12th. And now some say, hey, if we're educating first through 12th, while we're stopping there, we need to educate through age 22, and if we're stopping there, let's just keep on educating along the okay, and we just need to keep, and, and, and health care, and, and greater portions of the health care, and we could go on and on, and, and, and the needy, and welfare, and the unemployed, and right now, hey, we all want a government check, right? That's where we're at. That sounds very compassionate. It sounds like a great idea. Until we realize that sin breeds laziness in some people, many people. And I to, I'm not trying to get overly political here. I'm trying to make a point. As long as the government's sending a check, well, then what would motivate me to go out and work? And there's some people, literally, that's their mentality. And it is feeding laziness. That's why socialism has been found. It is just not sustainable. It, eventually, people get very frustrated if they're working and those over there that can work aren't and they're just receiving. But these people over here are like, hey, if you're going to keep sending it, I'll take a little less money if I don't have to work. This is a fine life. And it just breeds more, and more. it's just not sustainable. And so that's why many of you that are watching me now say, and that's why we're capitalistic. Okay, hang on. We need to acknowledge that capitalism and its defense has been very useful to those who are willing to work hard and can we even say take some risks. And it's been used to be a blessing and it's caused them to prosper. So yes, capitalism is great. But guys, I'm going to propose to you, if we are willing to look, if we're willing to look, there's an ugly underbelly to capitalism. You say, what is it? Sin breeds laziness in some, but the sin, the effect of sin on the human race, breeds greed in other people. You say, how would that greed show up? It will show up in literally exploiting. I'm not talking about all people who've been blessed and prosperous and given skills and ability. I'm just saying, as a whole, our nation has been guilty of this. It shows up in exploiting poor people and weak people. And I have resources and I have skills and ability. And again, you need a job and you're going to work for me. And this is how much you're going to make. And you're going to like it and don't ask for anything more. And you're going to work under these conditions. And maybe the conditions are you're going to be on call and you're going to be making me money. Well, I'm kind of taking it easy over here. And others, it's going to be conditions where your fingers and hands may get cut off in a machine or you're going to lose your hearing or take these barrels out there and dump them off the backside of the property. I don't care that it's making other people sick. You say, Jeff, that hasn't really happened. Oh, yes, it actually has. And as much as we may say, we don't need government oversight. Thankfully, there has been some government oversight. Capitalism could be great if it were kept in bounds. The problem is we have sinful hearts. You want to know the result? The blessings of God that have been meant to help people honor Him and be a blessing to other people has caused some people just to get so greedy and just exploit and abuse to advance their own selfishness. So I think there's a couple of things, sin, that God may be dealing with in our country. Laziness and greed. Of course, that's not all. I want to propose to you another thing, and we've seen another dynamic. This is going to sound very familiar. Another dynamic we've seen in our society, we've heard it for probably a year and a half, maybe two years, maybe even a little longer. You remember this? Our economy's growing. 
Our economy is growing. It's getting stronger and stronger. And for months and months, and finally, it was, it's, it's as strong as it's been in years. And then it's as strong as it's been in decades. And then I remember here, it's as strong as it's been since the 19, and they go back 50 years. And then it's the strongest in the world. We have the strongest economy in the world. I remember hearing that. You remember that? It seems like a long time ago. And then you started hearing this. We may have the strongest economy in the history of the world. Guys, I don't know enough about world history, and I sure don't know enough about economics to tell you. Is that true? Did we have the strongest economy in the history of the world? That's what we were hearing. Guys, listen to me. Here's the problem. What we were hearing about how great and how strong our economy was was being spoken with a tone of arrogance. It was being said, listen, as if one person or as if a group of people, a group of politicians who finally got their way, prompted by some lobbyists under them, they finally got their way. And look what it led to. It's our, or here's one, we're America. Our workers, we're the hardest working and we're the most ingenuitive and man, we have the skills and we're America. And look what we've done. Guys, I want you to listen to me. God resists the proud. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. It comes down from the Father. God the Father, the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift is not worked up by us. If we had a great strong economy, it was the gift of God. But we're down here just wallowing in our conceit. God resists the proud. God opposes. You understand that's in Proverbs 3. It's so important it's repeated in James chapter 4. It's so important it's repeated again in 1, chapter, 1 Peter chapter number 5. God opposes the proud. We can't go around and just brag and take all this credit and look at us. Can I say it this way? Oh, how easy it was for God to use a tiny, unseen, invisible to the eye enemy to just breach our borders and to bring our greatest of all time economy to a screeching halt to its knees. You understand? In days, days, greatest of all time, days. That's just an accident. Guys, I'll propose God is working. And it hurts. There are hurting people. Not even talking economics. There are people hurting. And it's coming. It may be coming to me. It may be coming to my house. It's coming. But that's not all. Very quickly, would you write this down? We have this other, this other dynamic that's been just running through our country. Hatred and division. And also abuse of liberties, abuse of freedom. You say, what kind of abuse? Catch it. Hatred, division. And in our country, abusing our freedoms to speak against national leaders just so easily. You understand, there is a time to point out that things are out of line. But how we say that? How do, we just, do we say it with hatred or do we say it with great concern and with a broken heart? Are we actually praying for people? You know as well as I do, people have been speaking against our national leaders. 
Exodus chapter 22, I don't have time to read it, verse number 28. God tells the nation of Israel that they are not to curse one of their rulers. What does that mean? Acts chapter 23, verse number 5, Paul explains what that means. He says, it is true, we are not to speak evil of one of our rulers. Because Paul had actually said something against the high priest. Even though the high priest was out of line, Paul spoke a a curse, a judgment against him. God shall smite you, you whitewashed wall. Someone says, how dare you speak that way against the high priest? You're right, we are not to speak evil of the ruler of the land. Hey, I have one more passage if you have your Bible. So you're Matthew there. First Peter chapter 2. Would you look at that? This is for Christians. First Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 13 down to verse 17. I'm just going to read it. Be subject. Here's what Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, that's in their day, the Roman emperor, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Watch verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I was going to say, you want to know what's sad? There's a lot of Christians, we believe in that, but we pick and choose what years we, we install that and what years we imply that and what years we put it to practice. Yes, that's right. The emperor, our equivalent, would be this person, this ranking person, and even the number two. Well, what about number three? What about number 50? We can't just say, yes, you need to do that. What about five years ago? And what about a year from now? We have to be careful. We cannot have this hatred and division and using our liberty and our freedom of speech to speak against God's rulers that He's put into place. Whether they're saved or not, we are to be praying for them. And yes, we can point out the things that they do that are wrong, but we must do it in the right spirit. Our country is just totally divided. And the last little thought there is a whole list of sins. I've given you three lines. Idolatry. We have national sins of idolatry, and it's, it's rampant. It's among Christians. You say, like what? Well, personal confession, you know what I'm having to learn? That life goes on without March Madness. You guys know I love basketball. I love sports. Basketball's my favorite. College basketball's my favorite of the basketball. Tomorrow night's supposed to have been the national championship. Life goes on. Life goes on without NBA basketball. Life goes on without soccer. It goes on without golf. It goes on without, without baseball. Can life in America go on without college football? We have a lot of idols. Addiction. We have a lot of substance abuse in our country. We have a lot of Christians addicted to pornography. And then, of course, we can't forget the word abortion. Hey, guys, listen, I'm just going to propose. You say, Jeff, what's the point? I'm just going to propose to you that we can't keep killing one and a half million unborn babies and God just continue to be okay with it. And we look at what's happening and like, hey, God, hey, fix this. We prayed. What's going on? I'm afraid that God has finally had enough. It's not hopeless, but we need to change. God has had enough. I I look at our country and what it has become, and it's almost as though we're consumed with consuming each other, or we're consumed with our idols, or we're consumed with what our money will buy us. And God's like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to fix you. And he's chastising us. So what do we need? 
Guys, I'll propose what we need is to confess our sins and our sins, our sins, and beg God, God, would you just have mercy? God, would you please have mercy? And then draw close, draw close to the Lord. Hey, there may be an 11-year-old kid watching right now, and you still get spankings. Let me give you a little tip that I didn't learn when I was young. When you're getting that spanking, sneak as close as you can to mom or dad or whoever's giving that spanking, and it doesn't hurt as much. It ends a lot quicker. The goal of God's chastening is to draw us near him. Draw near to God. Can I ask you? With what God is very clearly doing in our country, how are we responding? Here's my fear. My fear is that we, and Christians included, we may be just like the Gadarenes. God is specially revealing himself, and all we want to do is just get back to life we had before. God, just make it go away. Be careful. Are we Christians who just, are there Christians listening right now? We just want to get back to just little thoughts of God. Marginal lordship of Christ. Occasional, weak, distracted prayers. I heard a message about prayer, heard a series. I was praying there for a while. It's kind of got back to the normal again. But now you find yourself thinking about God a little bit more. And maybe every now and then actually praying a little bit more. Have you changed? Have I changed? Or we just want to get back to consuming each other. And consuming our idols. And consuming what money can buy. Would you bow your heads just for a moment with me? Let's pray. Can I propose just before we pray? Christian, honestly ask yourself, how has your inner life changed over the last five weeks, four or five weeks in particular? I haven't studied it freshly, but I remember a pestilence was running through the nation of Israel and Moses and Aaron I think it was Aaron had to run out among the people with a censer to stop the pestilence. And another occasion, God was judging David, and David prayed, and the pestilence was stopped. And guys, I don't understand what all is God wanting to accomplish. I don't know all that he's wanting to accomplish. But I want to propose to you, right where you're at, whoever's listening right now, heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe it's three or four of you. Maybe you're by yourself. Maybe it's just a couple. Really let the Lord challenge you that our nation, we need to confess the sins of our nation, our laziness, our greed, our arrogance, our idolatry, our hatred and division, our wrong use of language against those that we should not be speaking against, our addictions, our abortions, again, our negligence of God. Confess. Take time today to confess personal sins, national sins. Beg God, God, would you please have mercy? Lord, we get it. We get it. People are hurting. People are dying. Lord, the numbers they're projecting is, is getting far worse day by day. Lord, would you please withhold, spare. Lord, we know that you have a plan. It will be for your glory and it will be for our good. But God... We're asking, if it be in your grace and in your mercy, to withhold and draw close to Him. Just before I pray, is there a Christian? You, you think I've been being oppressed. 
I think the enemy has really been against me. Would you submit to God, draw close to the Lord, and resist? Take a stand. That's your ground. Christ fought to win that ground. He has won it for you. You stay in that ground. Don't run. You draw closer to Him, and you resist by faith and by specific passages of the Scripture and by lots of prayer, and you let God sustain you. Man, if there's an unsafe person, whether battling a demonic force or not, did you hear the gospel? And would you hear the call of the Holy Spirit, even now, saying, if you will, if you will put your faith and trust in Christ and take Him as your Lord, He will save you at a moment of time. Just trust Him. Say, God, I hear it. I believe the gospel. I receive the gospel. John 3.16 is true. Father, you know the need. Lord, I know I've gone long today, but God, I pray that you would use it. Would you wake my heart up? Would you wake our church up? Would you help us to surrender to you as the Lord? Lord, we want your full will done, but God, we want to use our platform of prayer to make a request for mercy. Lord, if there's a person that's not saved that we can be of help to, Lord, let them contact us this week. Give them faith. Draw them. Call them. We pray in Christ's name.